Good morning again, church. I pray that you are all well as we venture into week two of our study pertaining to the whole armor of God. Today we will be in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, looking at the breastplate of righteousness. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, wait a second, I thought we were in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 last week, and to which I would reply, you are correct. But if you remember back to last week, we focused only on the first part of verse 14, or on the belt of truth. Remember? That in order to have any chance of not being fooled by the evil schemes of the devil, we must gird onto ourselves the belt of truth, or the objective truth of God's Word. We must read His truth. We must meditate on His truth. We must remind ourselves of His truth. And we must preach this truth to ourselves over and over and over each day as this is the foundation of our lives and points us to the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, God's objective truth then, as revealed in His Word, it must be connected to every fiber of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and guide us in determining our worldviews, our decisions, our lifestyles, and our actions toward our neighbor. In short, our knowledge of God's truth, it should guide every practice of our lives. I read a joke this week about an elderly woman who had just returned to her home from an evening service when she was startled by an intruder. As she caught the man in the act of robbing her of her valuables. So she yelled, stop, Acts 2.38, which means repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the burglar stopped dead in his tracks. Then the woman calmly called the police and explained what she had done. As the officer cuffed the man to take him in, he asked the burglar, why did you just stand there? All the old lady did was yell scripture at you. Scripture, replied the burglar. She said, stop, I have an axe in 238. (laughs) And if you're like me and have no idea what a 38 is, it is a revolver. Now, although I don't think that is exactly what Paul had in mind in applying the truth of God's word to our lives, our God, he does work in mysterious ways. Nevertheless, growing in the truth of God's word, it will naturally produce in us more godly or more righteous behavior. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning or the main theme of our sermon this morning. Our thesis statement this morning is this, that true, regenerating, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will naturally transform an individual's practical righteousness, which in turn will help the Christian stand against the evil schemes of the devil. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this, that true, regenerating, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will naturally transform an individual's practical righteousness, which in turn will help the Christian stand against the evil schemes of the devil. And our text this morning again is Ephesians chapter 6, and we are in verse 14 which reads, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. Lord, we thank you that we can gather today as a body, as the church body, as the bride of Christ, and worship you. Father, I pray that we see in your text today that this is your armor, God. This is the armor that Jesus Christ has worn to defeat the ultimate enemy, sin. And Lord, that you have given us that we can put on, not so that we can be like Jesus Christ, not that so we can try to defeat the enemy on our own might, but you have given us this armor so we can stand in you, Christ, so we can rely in you, Christ. Father, you have given us the truth of your word, and you have called us to put on this breastplate of righteousness, this practical righteousness, so we can avoid the schemes of the devil. Father, I pray you convict us of any sin we have in our life. Lord, I pray you convict me of any sin I have in my life, and we lay it at the foot of the cross, at the one who has defeated sin and death and Satan forever. Lord, help my lisping, stammering, sinful tongue this morning. Lord, if there are sins in my life I am unaware of, I repent this morning. I pray and plead with you to cleanse me and to help me speak truth with conviction, with boldness, with humility to this dear flock. Do your work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning is this, point number one, that true, regenerating, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will naturally transform an individual's practical righteousness. True, regenerating, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will naturally transform an individual's practical righteousness. And again, our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, which calls Christians to stand therefore, and our focus this morning is having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we will begin this morning with the concept of the breastplate, or why Paul calls Christians in the midst of this spiritual battle to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, this answer is similar to last week. It is twofold. So for, first off, Paul likely has in mind here that the breastplate, which was worn by Roman foot soldiers, it was worn for the purpose of protecting their vital organs in the midst of battle. You know, their heart, their lungs, whatever else is in here. I obviously wasn't a bio major in college, but it was to protect their vital organs. And if you want a mental picture of what this breastplate would look like, Philo described it as kind of a half-shirt, half-shield hybrid. So just imagine like a giant metal sleeveless t-shirt that you would put on and it would cover your chest and your back and your shoulders and your midriff, but it was strong, like really strong, strong enough to protect a Roman soldier from arrows being shot at him or to deflect swords that were being swung at him. 
Thus, it was an absolute critical piece of armor for a soldier to wear if he hoped to survive any type of hand-to-hand combat or a battle. However, Paul not only has the armor of a Roman foot soldier in view here, he also has the Old Testament in mind here, particularly that of Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. And why do I say that? Well, in brief, in Isaiah 59, God's people, they have a problem, which is verse 2, their iniquities have made a separation between them and God. Verse 3, their hands are defiled with blood, their lips have spoken lies. In short, they have a sin problem, and it has created a barrier between them and God, or it has separated them from God. But God, in his mercy, sent a Savior who in Isaiah 59, 17, it says, will put on righteousness as a a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. In essence, as Ian Dungrid explains, God's people, they have no righteousness in and of their own merit to bring before God. Their best righteousness apart from divine help is nothing more than filthy rags. Therefore, the prophet Isaiah describes the divine warrior Jesus Christ coming to deal with the great enemy, their sin. Therefore, the breastplate of righteousness is again a piece of armor that God himself wore to rescue his people. So again, church, this is the lens in which we view the whole armor of God through, and today, the breastplate of righteousness through. This is ultimately God's armor in which he wore to rescue his people from their sin and to which he has now given to us so that we can stand firm in him and against the evil schemes of the devil. It is a profound and powerful image, church. And it takes us to the next question. How, what exactly did Paul mean then by righteousness? or when he said that we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And I'll begin with the obvious. First off, being that we are all good BFCers here and we affirm the total depravity of man, we know that for none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. No one understands Romans 3. Or as I mentioned earlier, we all have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, Isaiah 64. Thus, we can clearly conclude that Paul is not talking about our self-righteousness or our own dependence on our own righteousness for salvation. Which takes us then to the next consideration on this idea of righteousness. And this is where things can be a little confusing. So I want to try to nuance this well. Some commentators believe that it is Christ's imputed righteousness that is is in view here. And that's because we need to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5. But since we can't do that, since we are totally depraved, we need the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, which is available to all who believe, Romans 3. However, I do not think Paul has the imputed righteousness of Christ in view here. 
Because he says in verse 14 that we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we certainly cannot put on what we have already been eternally clothed in. As it is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that clothes us as Christians. And that will never, ever, ever go away. Thus I think what Paul has in mind here is what is called practical righteousness or a Christian's obedience or their conformity to the will of God. Or as the reformer John Calvin put it, a blameless life adorned with integrity, devout and holy. Or as Albert Barnes put it, integrity, holiness, purity of life, and sincerity of piety. In essence, our practical righteousness. Church, it is our practice of living out our new identity in Christ as we attempt to grow in our love and obedience to the truth that is God's word. Make sense? Now this question then arises. How then does our practical righteousness protect us from the evil schemes of the devil? And furthermore, how then are we to walk in practical righteousness? And both of these answers will be addressed, or questions, excuse me, will be addressed. But before they are, church, I want this to be crystal clear. A person's pursuit of practical righteousness, a person's pursuit of personal holiness, a person's pursuit of displaying God's righteousness in how we live our lives, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is not possible unless we first, by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, become new creations in Christ. Church, to say an individual can simply grow in holiness or carry out or display practical righteousness in their everyday lives in a way that is pleasing to God outside the working of the Holy Spirit or outward without first being a new creation in Christ, that is like saying we can be blind and yet still see a shooting star, or we can be deaf and still hear a beautiful symphony, or we can be dead and still live and breathe and be conscious and aware. To be dead in our sin, it doesn't mean, church, that we can kind of, maybe, somehow display some godly righteousness that is pleasing to God. To be dead in our sin means to be dead to the things of God. Deaf, dead, dumb, deceased, and unable to certainly practice any righteousness that is pleasing to God. God. As Romans 8, 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. David Burgess, he, he shared this story about a boat at the Portland Navy Yard that came in for repair and fumigation as yellow fever had broken out amongst its crew members during a previous voyage. The ship was thoroughly scraped and repaired and then put back into commission again. But it was less than a month later at sea when the fever appeared again. It was decided then to open up the ship and expose the fever spores to a thorough freezing during the winter, as medical professionals said that the spores could not live in the cold weather. In the spring, the ship was again painted and refurnished, but again the fever appeared. Then it was decided that although it was a noble-looking vessel, Death was in it, and it was towed to the sea and sunk. So it is with all who have not been born again. 
They carry within their hearts the deeds of a fatal fever. And unless they are cleansed of it by the blood of Christ, they will one day go down in the sea of divine wrath. Church, it doesn't matter how pretty or how well put together you look on the outside. It doesn't matter what good deeds you do for humanity or the humanistic ideals you promote on the outside. Church, those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. Thus, in order to practice God-pleasing behavior in our lives, in order to walk in practical righteousness, in order to put on the breastplate of righteousness, we must be born again. Jesus told this thing to Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And how does this take place, church? Because of God, 1 Corinthians 1. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Thus, because we are born again in Christ, we are forgiven by Christ, justified by Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and our new creations in Christ. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the church father, Augustine, he learned this very lesson firsthand. When he turned and ran in the opposite direction, after seeing one of his former mistresses on the street after his conversion experienced. Surprised, the woman cried out, Augustine, it is I! But Augustine, running in the opposite direction, cried back, yes, but it is not I. This is our life now, Christian. Ephesians 4, we put off the old self, which belonged to our former manner of life, and we put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Thus rejoice this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, that we have been born again, forgiven by Christ, justified by Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and now living out our new identity in Christ. Therefore, Christian, simply just be who you now are in Christ. That is our goal, to be who we are in Christ. Which takes us to point number two. Growing in practical righteousness will help you, Christian, stand against the evil schemes of the devil. Growing in practical righteousness, Christian, it will help you stand against the evil schemes of the devil. All right, so you may be sitting there this morning thinking, yes, I am a child of God. And yes, I have been born again by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, I have had my sins forgiven. I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ. And today I see that I am called to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to practical righteousness so that I can stand in the Lord and against the evil schemes of the devil. But how exactly does this work? How exactly does my practical righteousness keep me protected from the evil schemes of the devil? And it's a good question. So if you remember back to Ephesians chapter 4, we discussed that as new creations in Christ, our lives, they will look different from the world. 
In particular, in verse 26, it reads, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, why should we not let the sun go down on our anger? Verse 27, to give no opportunity to the devil. In essence, to allow yourself to boil or to simmer or to fume with anger over a long period of time, it gives Satan the opportunity to try to turn your anger into violence or hate or abuse or any other litany of sinful behaviors. And in the same way, if we neglect our practical righteousness or our pursuit of holiness or our day-to-day obedience to God's Word, it gives Satan the opportunity to wiggle his way into our lives. Think of it this way. Tony Evans, he illustrated it with this. He said, if you leave water stagnant for an extended period of time in the summer, you will attract mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are going to hang out where there is stagnant water because that's home for them. If you leave trash out for an extended period of time, you're going to attract a rat and his cousins. You will have attracted them because you have created an environment in which they can be at home. If you leave food out for a long time, you're going to attract roaches as they will make the connection between the environment that you have set up and an opportunity for them to share in it. Church, wherever there is dirt, wherever there is filth, wherever there is sin that is left alone in your life, it is an opportunity for Satan to make himself at home and to gain a foothold in your life. So the question is, church, are we giving Satan any opportunities to gain a foothold in our lives? Are we taking serious our pursuit of practical righteousness? Are we obsessed with being who we now are in Christ? Are we infatuated with killing sin in our lives so that we give no opportunity to the devil? Or do we view grace as simply a get-out-of-jail-free card as we actually enjoy our sins without even thinking about turning from them or thinking we can just cheaply call on grace whenever we want and continue in our sin and let simply let grace abound to which the Apostle Paul cries out, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And here might be the point of conviction or the point of contention for you this morning, church. You may be sitting there this morning thinking, Wes, I want to put on the breastplate of righteousness. I want to be more obedient to God's word. I want to practice righteousness more faithfully. I want to live out my new identity in Christ. But man, every time I try, I just mess it all up. Like, I want to stop swearing, but then I stub my toe, and out comes a four-letter word. Or I want to stop clicking on those web pages, but the lust in my heart makes it so hard for me to resist. Or I want to stop putting my identity in my money, or my status, or my social standing, but at times, those are the only things that bring joy to me in this life. So why even try to start? Why try to be holy, and practice righteousness, and read my Bible, and love others, and be sexually pure, and not swear, when I just know I am going to fail and prove to myself and to the world and my family and the church how much of a failure I am as a Christian. Why should I even try? And as Mark Dunnigan put it, 
This is the lie that Satan wants you to believe. Right here. That since we can't achieve perfection on this earth, trying then to live the Christian life, it is hopeless, and we should not even attempt to do it. That is the lie that Satan wants you to believe. That since you can never walk in perfect righteousness here on earth, then you shouldn't even try because you're going to fail. But brother Christian, sister Christian, this is what we must understand. Our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of practical righteousness, it is about growing it is about developing. It is about maturing in Christ-likeness, not in trying to achieve by ourselves the perfect righteousness that Christ has already achieved for us. Instead, it is about growing in our knowledge of God. It is about developing our understanding of the Scriptures so that we can apply them more faithfully to our lives. It is about maturing in Christ-like character so that we can serve and love others like Christ loved and served us when we were hard to love. And are we going to fail? Yes. But just as my one-year-old daughter Glory gets up over and over and over again when she was learning to walk, we too must get up over and over and over again when we fail. Why? Because there is a finish line and Christ is waiting for you at it. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3. He said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect perfect. And this is Paul speaking here. He says, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are not perfect Christians. We are sinners, but we are in Christ and we can rejoice that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, please, 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 listen carefully. Our God, he forgives us. Our God, he forgives us when we fall. He forgives us when we fail. And he forgives us when we sin. Thus, Dunnigan concludes, forgiveness is always available for the Christian who slips and is willing to honestly admit such in repentance and prayer. Therefore, the Christian has a powerful incentive to never give up. That's why would we ever not take serious our call as Christians to put on the breastplate of righteousness and work out and grow in and practice the righteousness of Christ. For there is no downside, church. We become more like Christ. We stand firmer in Christ. When we fail, we are forgiven by Christ and we take away the opportunities of the devil to gain a foothold in our lives. Thus simply, church, press on. Press on in your practical righteousness. Press on in your pursuit of holiness. Press on in your obedience to the word of God and press on in Christ because he has made you his own. Press on in him, church, for there is no downside. There is no downside in pursuing a life of Christ-likeness. As we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here. First off, non-Christian, thank you so much for joining us this morning. 
It is an honor to have you here and to share God's infallible word with you. And I know you have heard me talk a lot about righteousness this morning. You've heard me mention self-righteousness. You've heard me mention practical righteousness. And you've heard me mention imputed righteousness. But for you non-Christian, the only righteousness that matters right now in this very moment is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And why do I say that? Because no matter how many good or moral or just deeds you think you do, as Solomon penned in the book of Ecclesiastes, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Thus, lovingly, non-Christian, I want to share with you, outside of the righteousness of Christ, you are dead in your sin. And the only way you can be reconciled back to God or simply stand in the presence of his holiness is not through your righteousness, it is not through your good works or your good deeds, but it is only through a perfect righteousness, the righteousness available only from God through Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save us as truly God and as truly man, who was born under the same law of God that we were, the same law that we as fallen human beings break over and over and over again. But unlike fallen human beings, Jesus, he did not break the law, but instead he kept it, he fulfilled it, he satisfied every precept of the law perfectly for us, and he not only kept the law perfectly for us, he also paid the price that we bidded in breaking the law. Thus, how can we be saved of our sins? How can we be saved from our breaking of the law? It is quite simple. Non-Christian, it is by repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin and reconcile you back to God forever. Because our God, he died in our place non-Christian. He was a substitute in our place. The wrath that you deserve for your sin, Jesus Christ, he bore it in our place. But being that he never sinned, three days later, he rose from the grave. Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave. And by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin and reconcile you back to God, Jesus Christ, he will not only forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of your sin, but he will also clothe you in his perfect righteousness when you trust in him, a righteousness that will deem you declared justified and righteous before God through eternity. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and you trust in Christ and Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin and reconcile you back to God forever. And today will be the day that you will be justified by faith and have peace with your God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through eternity. And to the Christian that is here today, Brother Christian, Sister Christian, I realize that the question you are likely pondering in your minds following this discussion on the breastplate of righteousness is something like this. 
So how then do I actually put on the breastplate of righteousness or take steps to grow in practical righteousness? Do I read my Bible more? Do I meditate on it more? Do I memorize scripture more? Do I pray more? Do I care for the least of these more? Do I mortify my sin more? What should I do? And honestly, Christian, those are all great places to start. And you know that. However, growing up as an athlete, I found that the best coaches I played for when putting a game plan together, they didn't give their players 10 things to focus on or five things to focus on. Instead, they gave us just one thing or two things to really focus on. And that is what I want to do today, to let you leave here this morning with just one thing to really hone in on, to really focus on, that will improve your practical righteousness. And that thing is this, repentance. Repentance. As we cannot conform to or work out or display the righteousness of God in our lives if we continually hold fast to sin. We cannot conform to or work out or display the righteousness of God in our lives if we continually hold fast to sin. Church, when the reformer Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, you know what his number one thesis was? I mean, you don't have to memorize all 95, but if you are going to memorize one, memorize the first one which is this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And church, as soon as Jesus began his earthly ministry, immediately he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, Matthew 4. And the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1. That is the Christian life, church. It is one of repentance. It is a life of being convicted of our sin. hating our sin, repenting of our sin, turning from our sin, and then having our lives slowly be transformed daily by trusting in the gospel for the forgiveness of our sin. And then it's wash, rinse, repeat. Trust me, church, you will never get to heaven and think, you know what, I just repented to to God too much for my sin. Or, you know, I just repented too much to people I offended. Or, you know, I just attempted to try to turn from my sin way too often. Church, you will never think that because a life of repentance, that is the life of a Christian. It's the life of a child of God, one born of God, forgiven of their sins, clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ and standing firm in the Lord Jesus against the evil schemes of the devil with the breastplate of righteousness put around their chest, living as a new creation in Christ. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body be obsessed in our quest for practical righteousness. Lord, we admit that we are justified only because you have forgiven us of our sins and clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, we admit that through our own righteousness, we can never be saved. Yet we ask for a zeal to pursue holiness, a zeal to pursue righteousness in our everyday life so that we give no opportunity to the schemes of the evil one. 
And yes, we know that we will sin. And yes, we know we will miss the mark. And yes, we know that we will fail. But let us cling to the fact that we have a God who forgives us. Thus take heed, Christian, because even when we fall, we can cry out, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Let that be your confidence, Christian, so that you can continue to press on in Christ, pursuing Christ with every ounce of your being until our sanctification is made complete and we stand in victory, completely sanctified, eternally glorified in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Press on toward that church. Press on toward Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are just in awe of your goodness and your mercy. It is through our sin, Father, that we have separated ourselves from you. And yet you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that we can be freed of our sins, forgiven of our sins, cleansed of our sins, and reconciled back to you. You have literally made us new creations. We have been born again in Christ. We have a new identity. Thus, let us live in that new identity. Let us be who we are in Christ. Lord, if there is any sin in our life that we are holding fast to, Father, help us repent of it, turn from it, and run to you. Father, help us to grow in your likeness, to display your righteousness as your children in all that we do so that we give no opportunity to the devil. Lord, it is you who has given us the belt of truth, your very word, so that we know how to live our lives, how to walk in godliness, how to walk in the light, to walk in love. Father, give us the courage, the motivation, the zeal to pursue it with every ounce, every fiber of our being. For we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, help us to press on in walking in those deeds as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.